0: Philanthropy has played a major role in building some of the most important public institutions in this country, from our libraries to our universities, but some of the grand ambitions of the generous donors have not always turned out in the ways that they had hoped. As tech companies grow and more wealth flows into the hands of people in Silicon Valley, the types of projects that big donors are funding is rapidly changing, which can have a large impact around the globe. The topic of this week's Please Explain is the changing face of philanthropy. And joining us is Michael Hobbs, a writer and human rights consultant in Berlin. His latest article for the Huffington Post Highline is How Mark Zuckerberg Should Give Away $45 Billion. Uh, Can I suggest that he give some of it to me, Michael? Um, We also... Invite our listeners to join the conversation. You can call us at 212-433-9692, write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopez. Welcome to our show, Michael. Thanks for having me. The success of Mark Zuckerberg seems like an anomaly, but are more of the millionaires and billionaires in this country younger than in previous generations?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a step change. I mean, there's more billionaires being produced And those billionaires are giving away more and more of their money. And the tech sector is driving that. So these people are doing it in a way that's much more ambitious than their forebears. And there's kind of a peer pressure in Silicon Valley to give away more money and to give away earlier. So somebody like Zuckerberg isn't expecting to put forth an endowment Or to have this live in perpetuity. He wants to give away 99% of his wealth and he wants to do it in his lifetime, which is pretty unprecedented on a historical scale.
0: And that's because so much of the wealth is now concentrated among younger people?
1: I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, it's it's multifactorial. So part of it is just kind of general income inequality. There's more rich people now. Uh, There's about 2,300 billionaires worldwide. Uh, And then there is this kind of sense of giving back that I really don't have a good explanation for. It seems like something in Silicon Valley is just pushing people toward giving away money has become cool somehow. And, and you write
0: that tech billionaires form giving circles. What are they? Yes.
1: So there's literally clubs of these people where they meet sort of once a month or once a quarter and kind of swap ideas about what the most interesting charities are and kind of what their experiences are. And so it's a closed circle. I mean, people always call Facebook a walled garden, and they're kind of creating a walled garden in philanthropy as well, where it's not clear who gets into those clubs or into those rooms, but once they're in those rooms, it's kind of an open dialogue, and people are willing to talk about their failures, but it's still behind those walls. So it seems like it's a lot of Silicon Valley bouncing ideas off of each other.
0: Do you think that this represents a a kind of change in thinking of the the super-rich? There was a time when uh, people would ask why do they need more money? And now we have Mark Zuckerberg deciding to give, him, give away 99% of his wealth, which I'm sure still leaves him pretty rich.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, the, the cynic in me wants to think kind of why are these people trying to remake the world in their own image and they should just be paying their taxes and that's it. And then the sort of idealist in me thinks, well, what else should they be doing with their $45 billion? Like just giving it to their kids or you know, giving it to Harvard and so part of me wants to applaud this, but it's not as easy as just giving away money or you know, opening a comment box where people can suggest where, to give their, where you should give your money to. It's actually really difficult to give away money well. And that's where I think some of this kind of wide-eyed optimism can get them into trouble.
0: How quickly does Mark Zuckerberg plan on giving it all the way to the 99% of his wealth?
1: Well, he said over the course of his lifetime. So he said that he won't give away any more than $1 billion per year
2: mm-hmm. for,
1: the, for the next three years. That's all he's committed to right now. And so it, since it's in Facebook shares, it's $45 billion at current valuation. So that could fluctuate over the course of his lifetime. But the 99% is the really big deal part of that because and- nobody else, to my knowledge, has ever given away that percentage of their wealth before.
0: And you're right. Zuckerberg's ability to remake the world in his own image in his own lifetime is unprecedented. Mm. Uh, To some degree, didn't Andrew Carnegie really reshape the world, at least in the later years of his life?
1: In the later years of his life. And I think that's really key, actually, because Mark Zuckerberg is 31. Well, Carnegie
0: wasn't rich at 31.
1: But Carnegie only really started when he was... Basically retired. Mm. And it's the same with, I mean, Rockefeller was doing it throughout his career, but it was always something that was completely separate to what he was doing as a businessman. Whereas Mark Zuckerberg has made this announcement basically right after he got rich, he started giving money away. And there's now things like something called the Founders Pledge, where startup CEOs, before they even sell their companies, they're already pledging to give a portion of their proceeds to charity. Now, so this is happening a lot younger, and the people that are doing the giving are also a lot younger.
0: and is the approach of Zuckerberg and these other young philanthropists uh, all that significantly different from Andrew Carnegie's or John Rockefeller's approach?
1: Well, I think I mean, I think every every philanthropist sort of rethinks philanthropy according to the way that they see the world. So I think that a lot of these tech, entrepreneurs are thinking of this as, you know, they've disrupted all these existing institutions. They consider themselves as people who have kind of rebooted the way that we think about the economy and the way that we think about work and social networks. And they're trying to do the same thing with philanthropy. So the ambitions are quite large. So when you look at any of the sort of values statements of any of these guys, what you usually find is words like reimagining or rebooting or revolutionizing and it's, there's not very much of a dedication to kind of incremental change. It's usually like we want to flip this institution upside down in the same way that they've done with, you know, taxi cabs and hotels and all of these other legacy institutions. They're interested in doing the same thing with philanthropy, or at least that's what they say.
0: We're looking at the nature of philanthropy today and the new philanthropist with Michael Hobbs, a writer and human rights consultant whose latest article for the Huffington Post Highline is How Mark Zuckerberg Should Give Away $45 Billion. We invite your calls here at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And this is WNYC, WNYC.org. I am Leonard Lopate. Uh, Zuckerberg already experimented with philanthropy when he donated $100 million to Newark public schools. When when Senator Cory Booker, the former mayor of Newark, was on our show recently, here's what he had to say about Zuckerberg's donation and the difference it made
1: to Newark. This is probably one of the best chapters in education uh, in our city. During the time I was mayor, if you were an African-American kid, remember, we're a majority black city. And, and unfortunately, our, our, uh, black children are often tended to be in the poorer school poor neighborhoods in the tougher schools. Your chances of being in a school that beat the state average went up two hundred percent. The Brookings institution said that Newark was one of the top three schools in the country for public school choice, having quality options.
0: Would you agree with uh, Cory Booker's characterization?
1: Well, I think that's one of the ones where there's a lot of complexity. I think when you compare what's happened in Newark to the original ambitions of Booker and Zuckerberg, that's where it falls short a little bit. So the original idea was, quote unquote, to flip a whole city. So they wanted to kind of reboot all of the schools in Newark. They wanted to establish all these new charters. They wanted to break the stalemate with the teachers union. And they wanted to create a model that was going to be replicated in all these other cities in America in five years. So basically, they wanted to create this model and scale it up in five years. And as the project went on and it got bogged down in bureaucracy and parent-teacher meetings and all of this kind of slowness and incrementalness, eventually they moved the goalposts backwards to where now Zuckerberg and Booker are saying that the charter schools in Newark are really good. And it sounds like the charter schools in Newark are really good. but it also is not clear that that's really what the city of Newark and the parents of Newark wanted in the first place, and that's also not really what Zuckerberg and Booker set out to do.
0: And didn't a good chunk of that money go to consultants? What were the consultants doing?
1: I mean, a lot of this was this model kind of thing where they wanted to create a model that could be scaled up to the rest of the country. So they were designing new kind of evaluation criteria and things that they thought could be spread out to the rest of the country. And they basically got bogged down, as these projects always do, in the specific challenges of Newark. So they weren't really thinking about Newark when they started this. They were thinking about all of the other places in the country where it could be copy-pasted. But whenever you're doing any kind of development work, it's always about the context that you're actually in, and that's where the challenges are. And so when you try to leapfrog that and go to this replication, that's where you end up getting slowed down. So
0: is not so is part of the problem one of scale that these philanthropists want their projects to grow very quickly and have a really powerful impact?
1: I mean, this is the, one of the things that that worries me the most about people like Zuckerberg, and especially these Silicon Valley, the kind of the discourse of Silicon Valley giving, is this idea that everything has to scale. So Zuckerberg is also investing in a private school called Bridge International Academies that has 400 schools across Kenya and wants to expand across the world and to cover 10 million students by 2030. And they have this very sort of standardized, quote unquote, scalable model where the teachers have tablets And there's a centralized curriculum that's created in Boston and then beamed down to the schools. And it's all very high tech and very sort of sexy. But education is something that is incredibly difficult to scale. And it's incredibly difficult to scale in more than one country at once. And so the history of development has basically been these ambitions over and over again being dashed as soon as you try to scale something. Running one school is difficult, but covering 10 million kids in 15 years is basically impossible.
0: Is what appeals to Mark Zuckerberg the school's emphasis on technology and uh, and the fact that it is starting in Kenya? Although, don't people have to pay to go to the school?
1: So, yeah. So one of the issues with the school is that it charges $6 a month in tuition for kids to go there. Is that part which, of the plan? I mean, that's kind of why people see it as a sustainable model. That's kind of part of the appeal, because the idea is if it was a donor-funded school and then the donor pulls out next year, then all of a sudden the school has to close. Whereas if you're charging a fee for a service, that's sustainability in the same way that you pay your internet service provider and you keep getting internet. So if you have a built-in revenue stream, then your business theoretically can exist in perpetuity. And if your business is doing social good then that social good will increase in perpetuity. That's the theory. But where this breaks down in practice is that it's not clear that the, that the services that these schools are providing are really commensurate with that. And $6 a month is actually a lot of money for a lot of people in Kenya. And the average woman in Kenya has 3.5 kids. So this can be a huge burden on people when they're sending this many kids to these schools, not to mention that the schools are charging extra for things like textbooks and uniforms.
0: Hasn't, so, and hasn't there been some international pushback against bridge academies?
1: I mean, so I was just in Kenya last month and people in Kenya hate bridge international academies. There's billboards all over the place in Nairobi for these schools and last year an open, or a 116 NGOs signed an open letter to bridge international academies and the World Bank and pointed out that while Bridge has 400 schools and got 100 million in international investment by people like Zuckerberg. The public school system in Kenya, that has 18,000 schools, only got 83 million. So, meanwhile, this new and sexy idea of these e readers and tablets and everything is getting all this money and charging people at the same time, and yet the free school system is not getting as much. So this is something that people in Kenya are really annoyed about, and I think that should be Zuckerberg's first test of whether you're on the wrong track. If the people in the country don't like what you're doing, you should probably stop and listen to them.
0: Now, I've invited listeners to join in this conversation, and our number is two one two four three three nine six nine two. They can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org/slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where I handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Nina from Great Neck, you're on the air. Yes.
2: Can you hear me? Yes. I call because I've worked in philanthropy for many years, and I've also worked in the nonprofit world, so I've seen philanthropy from both sides of the table. I think it's a couple of observations, one of which is I don't really think there's anything new under the sun. I think we keep renaming things, whether we call it impact in- investing or venture philanthropy. Um, but I think the one thing, so I think that's something to consider. But the other thing is I think we don't appreciate the role of arrogance in philanthropy. You know, this notion of remaking the world in one's image assumes that one's image of the world is the right one. And I think that that's often mistaken. Um, and I know I didn't hear what came just before, but I think one of the reasons that Zuckerberg stumbled in Newark, and I do think he stumbled badly, is because he didn't ask the right questions of the right people. You know, And the story you were just telling about Kenya, I think, exemplifies that in whose interests are being served by the good intentions of the very wealthy through their philanthropy. And I think we don't that, ask that question, and we don't. And I think it's an
1: incredibly important one to wrestle with, Michael. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good point. And and usually, what we find, what I find in my own work as well, is that oftentimes when sort of big philanthropists come into these locations, they're moving at thousand miles an hour, and everyone else who's been doing this longer than them is moving a lot a lot more slowly. So when somebody comes up in kind of their Range Rover and they've got their tinted sunglasses and they're a millionaire and they show up in one of these African villages and they say, we're going to give you all this stuff and we're going to change everything. Most of the people there will say, well, there's actually four NGOs that are already doing this and it's taking some time and they're consulting people to find out what needs to be done. And there's kind of all of this boring stuff that has to be done before you can get the sexy results. And oftentimes it's, the mega philanthropists that are trying to skip that step, skip all the boring stuff, and go straight to the sexy stuff and then trying to scale or trying to replicate things when they haven't even done it right the first time.
0: Some years ago, we talked with uh, people about uh, another African uh, venture in which the wells were uh, were created uh, using uh, things that look like playground, uh, uh so, yeah, play, play pumps. Yeah, and uh, it was great. The kids loved playing on them. Everybody loved the water. And then when uh, the the pumps broke down, there was no money to fix
1: them. Yeah, I mean, the same thing, you could say the same thing about um, one laptop per child, which was this idea that they were going to give laptops to a bunch of poor kids. Also this kind of tech centrism of, hey, technology will solve all of our problems. And they sent out, I think it was over 100,000 of these laptops, but no training for teachers on how to use them and no training for parents on how to use them. And the kids really got nothing out of them. And then when they crashed, there was nobody to fix them. So they were basically these pieces of plastic that eventually kids were just sitting around in kids' houses. But Again, development is just full of ideas like this that are just have these great big ambitions and just kind of go nowhere or make things worse on the way.
0: You right. Zuckerberg shouldn't think of himself as a venture capitalist. He should think of himself as a mutual fund manager. What do you mean Mm -hmm. by that?
1: Well, there's so much. I mean, it's kind of the point that I was making a second ago in that there's whatever idea you have, somebody has probably already tried it. So one of the sexiest ideas in development right now and that all these Silicon Valley guys are really into is giving people money directly. So you basically go to a village in Kenya, find the five poorest people there, and you give them $1,000 on their cell phones and no questions asked. They don't have to report. They don't have to buy anything specific with it. And in general, people tend to buy things like metal for their roofs or they invest in a business, et cetera. And this is like the sexy idea in development right now. And this idea has been around since the 1980s. Latin American countries have been giving school kids money and have been giving parents money for ages. And humanitarian aid in the, 19- in the 2005 tsunami was also just giving people envelopes full of cash. So it's a good idea But it's really the tech component that people are excited about that makes it seem new, like, oh, they're getting money on their cell phones. But really, the idea of giving people money, it's a good idea. But I don't see why a philanthropist should be doing that and not people's own government in a sustainable way.
0: I'm speaking with Michael Hobbs, a writer and human rights consultant in Berlin, whose latest article for The Huffington Post Highline is How Mark Zuckerberg Should Give Away $45 Billion. We will continue our conversation after we take a little break. We'll be taking some of your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can also write to us on our show page at WNYC.org slash Lopate or on Facebook where Mark Zuckerberg uh, likes to communicate or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Stay with us for more. And we're back with our Please Explain look at philanthropy and the new philanthropists with Michael Hobbs, whose latest article for The Huffington Post headline is How Mark Zuckerberg Should Give Away $45 Billion. Uh, we're getting lots of calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at org slash or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Marie from Brooklyn, you're on the air.
3: Hi, Leonard. How are you? I'm well. Good. Go ahead. Um, I am a young philanthropist. I'm, I'd say, a few years older than Mark Zuckerberg, and I run a small family foundation. And I'm finding that philanthropy is really an old boys club. It's tough to crack into it if you're a young woman, even a young man, I'm sure. Um, I'm not always taken seriously. I find um, even with organizations that are very established, I go to an event, and I'm the youngest person there by 40
1: years and one of the few women.
0: You want to join in, Michael?
1: I, like Philanthropy is such a weird world. Like, it's, not, it's not quite the business world, and it's not quite the NGO world, and it's this weird thing in between where like, there's all this money around and no accountability. But it sort of has this dress on as if it's really charitable and doing all this good. And there's really no – I mean, one thing that really struck me in the art when I was writing the article was just that, like, there's nothing stopping these foundations from doing really, really bad work all the time. Like, there's no real accountability mechanisms. All the boards of most of these foundations don't exercise any real oversight, and there's no real – measurement of whether what they're doing is good or not. Like, they're not, no one's really critically looking at, did you give away a billion dollars well this year? And so I think this creates this weird clubby atmosphere where it's a lot of, like, martini glasses clinking and things. And it just seems like, I mean, I haven't been on the inside like you have, but that doesn't surprise me that it would have a clubby sort of feel because it just so far removed from all of the structures of accountability and kind of basically providing a service that people want.
0: Marie, what kind of philanthropy are you involved in?
1: We give to arts organizations. Ah.
3: So it's very specific. But we give both to very established organizations as well as young up-and-coming ones, and of course in those I tend to find more people my age um, both Mm. on the donating side as well as in in the organizations themselves, of course.
0: Now, Michael, you write that some of the best ideas for philanthropy are the ones Zuckerberg is the least likely to hear in Silicon Valley. Should he be talking to Marie?
1: Probably. I mean, this is, this is the other thing that really worries me about this Silicon Valley philanthropy and kind of people, these kind of mega philanthropists, is that who are they speaking to? So, you know, one of the people that I spoke to referred to his donation as a 1,000-pound gorilla. And you don't get to Zuckerberg, you don't get to pitch your idea to Zuckerberg without like 18 layers of gatekeepers between you and him. And so what he tends to give to is the charities that have Vimeo channels, the charities that go to TED Talks, the charities that are at Davos. And to me, I mean, from my own work in Zimbabwe and Zambia, most of the people doing interesting work are too busy doing the work to make Vimeo talks and to do these kinds of things. And... I just don't see a clear link between someone like Zuckerberg and somebody on the ground who's actually doing interesting work. Um, One of the people I talked to had this distinction between the hypers and the doers. And the hypers are people who talk about their ideas in terms of this is going to change the world or this is going to make everything better. Whereas the doers, the people that are actually doing the work, usually talk about it with a lot more nuance. They talk about things like, well, it might work here, but it might not work there. Let's test it out before we do too much. This kind of language. And it's exactly these kinds of people that don't get in front of somebody like Zuckerberg because they don't have a nice pitch. It's really difficult to get your ideas noticed when you're saying them with caveats or when you're saying, well, we don't necessarily think this could scale. Most donors are not going to listen to you. And so it just creates this kind of collective action problem where everybody has to inflate what they're trying to sell to get any funding at all.
0: Maybe we should stop picking on Zuckerberg for a moment. What about <laughs> Bill Gates? You're right about the 70 million dollar Gates Foundation donation to Path and the World Health Organization for Vaccines mm-hmm. in Africa. Is that a better kind of grant?:
1: I love this story. Like the, the story is basically that Bill Gates gave 70 million dollars to this charity called Path in 2001 and said, you guys have 10 years? make us a vaccine for meningitis A, which was at the time killing up to 25,000 people across Africa in these terrible outbreaks. And basically, since he had... It was such a long timeline... And it was, such, it was so flexible. It was like, I'm not going to micromanage you. I'm not going to look over your shoulder. Just get it done. Whatever you have to do, get this vaccine out to people who need it in 10 years. And it worked. And so now, I think it was last year, there were four reported cases of meningitis A. It's one of the closest sort of eradications of a disease as we've had in this generation. And that's such a great idea of, it's such an example of finding the people that know more about something than you do And just giving them all the money that they need to do it and getting out of their way. And you write that
0: the the duration of the grant, 10 years, was important.
1: Yes. Why did they
0: choose a 10-year timeline?
1: I don't know, actually, why they chose that in—I think that was the timeline that they thought it could get done in. I mean, I think that they were under the impression that they were 10 years away from a viable vaccine, and that turned out to be the case. And for my own work in human rights, you're always on one-year, two-year, three-year grants. And so oftentimes, by the time you get to the point where you kind of know if an idea is working, you have to stop the plan. You have to justify it to your donor, and you have to package it and try to get more money for it. And that cycle, going through that cycle over and over again, is really taxing, and it's really difficult to do good work in that context. So one of the guys that I spoke to from Path said that you need to go two steps forward and one step back. And it's really difficult to justify that one step back to your donor when you're on these short timelines.
0: Now, we mentioned uh, the consultants in the Newark schools, but don't the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation spend a lot of money on consultants? What about the Gates Foundation? As it expanded, did it begin to spend more on consultants in administration?
1: Yeah, so the Gates, when the Gates Foundation gave that grant in 2001 to cure meningitis A, they had about eight staff. And they the first 180 million grants, in, 180 million in grants that they gave out was just by eight to 10 people. It was basically the size of a family, and they were finding good organizations and giving money. Since then, the Gates Foundation has expanded to 1,300 people. And so with that comes a lot more second guessing, a lot more processes, a lot more justification, and these kinds of... Systems that make their grantees over-promise, so the kinds of things that I was talking about where grantees have to promise the moon. So that's an inevitable thing, but it doesn't, actually, it doesn't have to be that way.
0: Let's take a call from Lisa from Newark. Hi, you're on the air.
3: Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm calling because I just, you know, I'm a teacher in, in Newark, and I just wanted to say just a brief comment that I feel there are a lot of these people that come in different programs and things that a lot of money go into, and for whatever reason, a year or two years later, there's not a lot of difference made, and then they're just close on, and we're not really talking about why, what happened, things of that nature. I think that the money needs to go into the community and not into the the school. I feel that they put too much emphasis on school, 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 and not really what's happening and the reasons why the, the children are not being successful with these various programs. Yeah,
0: when you say community, what are you talking about? Better housing? Things like that?
3: Like in the home, like having access to training on how to start them with reading in the home at an early age, um, having access to, you know, learning toys that are for learning, and just having more books in the community and having, you know, within the household type of thing. I think that the issues are. I mean, I could go on and on, but to make a brief comment that I think that the money is not going in the right place, really. Yeah.
0: Now, Michael, she's suggesting that they want to go to the sexy areas, mm. the areas that get the most attention in the press.
1: Well, this is the really difficult thing about social change, is that you can't pull out one element of a complex problem and fix it and then put it back. So when you talk about education There's a lot of problems in education, and I'm sure that some extra funding would help them, but then there's also problems in the home, there's problems in the infrastructure in the community, there's problems with after-school services, there's problems with post-graduation. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and when you think about something as complex as education, most other social problems are the same way. Something like criminal justice is something that's really really complicated and there's a million different players and you have to look at each one of them differently. And you can't just say, "Oh, we're going to fix prisons and then criminal justice will be okay." And one of the things that I think people forget when they're doing international development is that every other country is just as complex as ours. So if you're trying to, you know, donate or, you know, build water infrastructure in a place like Kenya, Kenya is just as complex and difficult and contradictory as our own country. So anything that you're trying to do in a place like Kenya that you don't know as well is going to come up against the same challenges. It's just because we're not as familiar with Kenya, we think, oh, it's simple. People need water. I'll just give them water. But we know that in the States, it's not like, oh, these kids lack textbooks. I'll just give them textbooks. There's probably some good reasons why they don't have textbooks. And we get that in our own country, but I think we tend to forget that with foreign countries.
0: Let's sneak Eddie from Clifton, New Jersey in here. Hi, Eddie. you got to make it quick.
3: Uh, no problem.
1: Um, thanks for having me.
3: Um, I'm just wondering how much corruption is in philanthropy. I mean, the state lottery is supposed to go to education. So how much of that really goes to education and how much goes into somebody's pocket? The Wonder Warrior Project, two executives just got in, in trouble, fired whatever for stealing money from it. So... How far is the corruption in nonprofit and philanthropy?
1: Well, what's amazing about philanthropy is that there's really nothing stopping them. I mean, it's really—it's pretty easy to get away with it. Like, there's these big foundations, like the ones that we've all heard of, but then there's something like 85,000 foundations in the United States. And it's really easy to set up a charity and call it, like, the Wounded Veterans Trust or something— and just start getting donations. So there was actually a veterans charity a couple of years ago that got busted for literally being a P.O. box and doing nothing, and it got something like 600000 in donations from just sitting there.
0: Carrie, so Carrie from Manhattan wants to know, and we have very little time, if, they're, if we're seeing millennials giving more than past generations.
1: On an individual level, I don't know, actually. Mm-hmm.
0: But we're seeing, you're saying, we're seeing a a shift in the kinds of philanthropies that are being developed.
1: Yeah, so in 2014, six, um, or in 2012, 4% of the greatest, the largest donations in the U.S. came from people under 25, and that was up to 25% in 2014.
0: Michael Hobbs is a writer and human rights consultant who is based in Berlin. His latest article for the Huffington Post Highline is How Mark Zuckerberg Should Give Away $45 Billion. And Michael, thank you so much for participating in today's Please Explain This Look at Philanthropy and the New Philanthropists.
1: Thanks. I'm Rotten in Denmark on Twitter.